text this morning, Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 1 through 18, please. The topic there, God tells Jeremiah, we all have a deceitful heart and that we therefore tend to con ourselves into departing from the Lord. The title of our message, the not-so-comic con. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our time in the word this morning. Our time in worship was sweet as our hearts were brought to bear on our love for you. And now, Lord, we want to see your love for us as it's expressed in these words that you inspired uh, Jeremiah to pen and to uh, put in, on parchment, Lord, so that we could have them today in this translation and study them, Lord, and have them study us. And Lord, we search the scriptures to see Jesus. It's true, Lord, that you're on every page. It's up to us to identify you, to see you in these words. And that's our heart's desire. We'll have the help of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, have your way with us, we pray. In Jesus' name and all who agreed said, amen. Workplace pranks can be fun or they can become deadly. Joshua Philip Martin, an EMT in Virginia, was found guilty of involuntary manslaughter for zapping a coworker with defibrillator paddles in what turned out to be a deadly prank. Zapping a beating heart isn't always deadly. Doctors use a technique by which an abnormal heart rate is converted back to a normal rhythm. My dad, when he was alive, had this procedure. Synchronized electrical cardioversion uses a therapeutic dose of electrical current to the beating heart at a specific moment in the cardiac cycle to get it back beating correctly. In other words, they zap you to get your heart back in sync. This portion of the book of Jeremiah is like spiritual cardioversion by which God is seeking to get your heart back in sync with his. Maybe your heart is already in sync with God's. That certainly can be true, at least for a little while. But because we still struggle with the flesh, and we will until we go to be with Jesus, from time to time, sometimes daily, we need a good jolt to get us back in sync. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, God wants your heart to be in sync with his. And number two, a question, do you want your heart to be in sync with God's? Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 1 through 12. God wants your heart to be in sync with his. These first few verses, they're familiar, some of them at least, but they're pretty rough on us. They're going to describe the human heart, your heart, my heart, not the physical heart, but the person that we essentially are, as constantly departing from God and deceiving ourselves while we are doing it. Maybe it will help to first see God's intention in zapping us like this. We see it in verse 12 where Jeremiah's response to God's spiritual cardioversion is to say, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. Now the sanctuary he's talking about isn't the physical sanctuary in Jerusalem, the temple. It's a spiritual relationship wherein we enjoy peace and security and safety and love. It's been God's intention from the beginning from the beginning of creation to be our living sanctuary. He therefore is constantly working to bring our hearts in sync with his. Billy Graham is credited with coining the phrase, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. 
There's something very wrong with us that we are born into this world dead in trespasses and sins. Even after being born again, the flesh remains and our hearts are prone to depart from God. We sung this morning, prone to wander, and that's true. And so let's begin in verse one. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of your altars. While their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. Young King Josiah had destroyed all the pagan altars. Afterwards, King Jehoiakim had restored all the pagan altars. God likened the situation to engraving. That's a metaphor he chose. You probably have some jewelry that is engraved. Maybe it's your wedding ring and it has the name of your beloved and the wedding date on the inside. And so on the outside, onlookers see only the ring. Inside, you carry the true meaning of it even closer to your heart. God likened their idolatry to an engraving upon their hearts. Outwardly, they still worshiped him in the temple, but the presence of these other altars and images and high places showed what was really engraved on their hearts. It exposed their behavior, exposed what was really in their heart. They could say all day, every day, we worship the living God. They could go to the temple and offer their sacrifices, but as long as they were also worshiping these idols, they uh, had that engraved on their heart. Likewise, the fact that they were teaching their children to be idolaters revealed where their hearts were really focused. And so verse three, O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know for you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever." In every way he could in this book, by every image he could employ, God was warning Judah of the Babylonian invasion and the subsequent captivity. He would not spare Jerusalem or the temple. Their idolatry must be checked and broken once and for all. Verse five, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength whose heart departs from the Lord. Trusting in man means trusting in yourself rather than in God. You do it whenever you make flesh your strength. Now, the flesh in the Bible, it refers to your natural bent, your innate tendency towards pride and self-gratification and selfishness. Even after you are saved, the flesh remains. There's a remnant of it in your physical body and you are in a lifelong struggle against it until you go to be with the Lord. The flesh isn't just your physical body, but because we remain in an unglorified physical body, we have this latent tendency that still exists. And if you've been a Christian for longer than 10 seconds, you know what this is. There's a struggle between the flesh and the spirit. We sometimes refer to it as the old nature. Um, it, the old nature has actually been crucified with Jesus Christ. Uh, technically, to be accurate, it's the flesh. It's this leftover uh, principle tendency in our physical body to 
gratify itself and towards pride and vanity. Now, the struggle against your flesh is here described as a departure from the Lord. Think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They provide at least a good example of this. One minute, God was their sanctuary in the sense Jeremiah is using it. They met with him and talked with him face to face in the cool of the day in a beautiful garden that they tended, but it was no work for them at all. The next minute, because they chose pride and self-gratification, they departed from the Lord. They hid from him. And for his part, God had to banish them. Instead of fellowshipping with God in a beautiful garden, they had to sweat to till the ground and could only approach God through blood sacrifice in what had become the desert of creation. Now, the next three verses provide a stark contrast. Verse six, he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is in the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Satan told Adam and Eve they'd be like God if they disobeyed him. Instead, they found themselves in conflict with God, with each other, and with creation itself. It's a conflict that goes on even today. Whenever I choose to disobey God to sin, I'm choosing to vacate his sanctuary in favor of a desert. What I think is going to satisfy, to gratify, leaves me hopeless and helpless. I think it's some oasis I've discovered. It's really a mirage. It may be pleasurable for a time. I might even enjoy worldly success. But since I was made to have fellowship with God, I cannot ever be truly satisfied, planted like a shrub in the desert of this world. I can exist. I mean, you've probably seen all the Discovery Channel and nature shows, you know, where these plants grow and, you know, there's this life in the desert kind of a thing. Uh, there's an existence, but it's a harsh existence, and it's certainly not the plush, lush, uh, satisfying existence that God has for us. Now, the next verse gives us a rather unique insight into the working of the flesh. It's one of those verses that's so familiar, we don't usually stop to talk much about it, but we're going to this morning because I think I have kind of a, an interesting insight into it. Not, not my insight necessarily or something you've never heard before, but just a different way of kind of understanding this that I think will speak to you. It's verse nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? The word deceitful, very interesting word. It's used only three times in the Old Testament. It describes a swelling. In geography, it's used of a knoll or a small hill. And so if you were looking out at a plain and there was a little knoll or a small hill, you would call it deceitful. That's the word, I mean, it, 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 that comes to us as deceitful. When used in relation to traits of human personality, it describes an inflated, prideful vanity. According to Strong's Concordance, it also indicates something that is fraudulent or crooked. 
And so it's an inflated, prideful vanity that gives itself towards uh, fraud and crookedness. Even more interesting is that the word comes from exactly the same root as the proper name Jacob. You might remember how Jacob in the Old Testament on two occasions at least used fraud to get what he wanted. What Jacob twice did to Esau to steal his birthright gives a good idea of the practical meaning of deceitful. And so deceit, the deceitful heart is the prideful, vain heart that is given to fraud and uh, crookedness, okay? Now, one commentator thinking about this said, we might say our heart is always attempting to con us into something that is not good for us in any way. Its inducements may indeed appear attractive on the surface, but further examination would reveal that its appeals are fraudulent and risky. I was thinking about this. We have a romantic idea of con artists. We really do in our culture. Think Paul Newman and Robert Redford in The Sting. That's what, whenever I, I mean, that's my ear, I guess, my generation. Whenever I think of a con artist, I think of The Sting. And, and you know, you want them to bring down Doyle Lonigan, the Irish mobster, and it's just so perfect the way they do it. Or maybe if you're younger, you think of Leonardo DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can, the lovable con man who never really hurts anybody and actually helps people and loves them along the way. In reality, con artists are more like Bernie Madoff, who steal and rob you blind and ruin your life and end up incarcerated if people can actually catch them. That's what con artists are. I was in the bank the other day, our bank, and um, I wasn't eavesdropping, but I was at the counter and one of the managers was talking on the telephone to a client and I can't remember the, the exact words, but the gist of it was this poor lady on the other end of the phone or man, this poor individual was trying to figure out how to wire money to a friend of theirs that was trapped in London and had lost all of their belongings and, and was, you know, uh, you know all, all they needed was their bank account number and they would take, and the gal was trying to explain to her that a lot of times these things are fraudulent, that it's really not your friend. There's a guy on my email list um, who, uh, I don't know why, but his email gets hacked all the time and, I, and it, it, it always comes through as, hey, I'm, you know, I'm in wherever I am and I've lost everything. And, and, and of course, it's a con, it's a fraud. You, you know not to give out your social security number and your bank account number and your PIN number and all that online, don't you? You, you understand that, right? I hope so. <laughs> One of you is thinking, oh my gosh, that was me. You know, but, and so it's a con. And what happens when you get conned? It, it hurts. It, it, they, people steal from you. They, whether it's your identity or money or something else, there's a lot of con artists out there and there's nothing lovable about it. In reality, con artists are bad. You are, or at least you have in your heart, Bernie Madoff, not Paul Newman. You understand? There's a con artist in your heart and it's on the level of Bernie Madoff, but we always think it's Paul Newman or Robert Redford, so we don't always take our departures from the Lord seriously. Now, the person you con is yourself. 
And it's not a romantic comedy when you do it. It's a tragedy every time, even if it seems a small con. And so the Bible here is telling us that you and I, because of our flesh, we lie to ourselves about everything. And that's why we need the standard of God's word to test what we're thinking and saying. And it's just true that God will never contradict himself and he won't say something in the word and then something else to you. And so whenever I come to any kind of a conclusion that is not biblical, in fact is against the Bible, I'm conning myself into believing a lie. And people do this all the time in all kinds of situations. In fact, we're, we're prone to do it all the time because this is who we are in our natural bent. Your heart is also desperately wicked. One translation of that is incurably wicked. It's incurable, humanly speaking. We cannot change our hearts or heal them. God must do something supernaturally to save us and heal us. Uh, and this is why all other religions and attempts at making ourselves better and all of these things, they are all prone to fail because not only are we constantly lying to ourselves about the reality of life and these kinds of things in order to gratify ourselves or inflate our pride or to go our own way, but it's an incurable uh, heart disease apart from a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so verse 10, the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Let's concentrate first on the words, to give every man according to his ways, the fruit of his doing. God wants to reward you. That's what that means, essentially. And he's always providing opportunities for you to bear fruit, spiritual fruit, with his help and by his enabling. He comes looking for it, I dare say, even hoping for it. There are numerous parables in scripture about God as a husbandman coming looking for fruit. And so on the heels of telling us that our hearts are desperately wicked and incurable, he says, nevertheless, uh, you know, if you're saved, I put you in situations by which I can come looking for fruit because I have saved you and healed you. And the kind of fruit he's looking for, at least as it's stated here, isn't what you accomplish. We a lot of times think about fruit in terms of an outward work or an outward accomplishment. That can be part of it, but it's really how you're responding to life and its circumstances. It's what God finds in your heart upon a deep and thorough examination. Is your heart really set on God? Are you submitting to his will, walking in his ways despite the obstacles and difficulties, or are you conning himself? That's what the Lord is asking. So I'm coming looking for the spiritual fruit of obedience and submission, and so you're gonna have to ask yourself, am I conning myself in this situation? Verse 11, as a partridge that broods but does not hatch, so is he who gets riches but not by right. It will leave him in the midst of his days, and in the end, he will be a fool. You can't believe how much discussion there is about the relative accuracy of this proverb regarding partridges. Commentators spend an inordinate amount of time trying to defend 
this or to uh, give some other explanation as to how, how partridges really act. Do they really brood but not hatch? Some people say yes, others say no. What's funny is it's not really important at all that this statement be scientifically accurate. For example, we say a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. Is that statement a scientific reality? Have they proven scientifically by the scientific method that if I have a bird in the hand, it's as valuable as two birds in a bush? Is that a mathematical formula or reality? No, it's an idiom, it's a phrase, it's a saying. We all understand what it means. Hang on to what you have and, and it's as more valuable than what you don't have. And so this is that same kind of thing. I don't really care whether partridges steal other eggs or brood and don't hatch. That's not the point. It was a bird in the hand, two in the bush kind of a thing. The point of the partridge proverb is that you can approach life one of two ways. God's or yours. Your way, when you give in to your flesh, is that of the thieving partridge. What you gather and brood over will never hatch. It will never bring you life. What your heart, what your wicked heart, what your sinful heart, what your prideful heart gets itself set on and you go after and try to hatch, it's never going to bring forth the fruit that you think it was. It's like Adam and Eve thinking, we'll be like God. Who needs God when we can be like God? And you see the disaster that that brought into their lives, their offspring, and into the universe. And every time we make a decision that is not uh, challenged by the word of God, uh, a decision that is from the heart, we're making in microcosm, in miniature, what they did in macrocosm in, in a giant way. It may not throw us into a complete backslide. Uh, it may not ruin our lives, but it certainly puts us on that path. Uh, and, and so this is why we have to have a clear understanding of the things that God has actually said. Because God's way, the right way, is fruitful. It may be spiritually fruitful while it is physically sacrificial, but ultimately, we're looking for spiritual fruit. Ultimately, we are spiritual, supernatural beings who are going to rise from the dead or be raptured and live forever with the Lord. And these temporary circumstances and this temporary world is going to be over. Verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. We can claim this because we can put that into New Testament terms. Ephesians 1, 3 and 2, 6, if you run them together, they read like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so a glorious high throne, God's throne, heaven's throne, is the place from which we determine how to live on earth. Uh, and where we make our decisions. The con man within you, or the partridge within you, if that's more meaningful, always suggests there is something better than being in the sanctuary of fellowship with Jesus Christ. He suggests, or she suggests, that you are missing something. It was a lie in the Garden of Eden. It's a lie today. Do you want your heart to be in sync with God's? That's the question that is answered in verses 13 through 18. Jeremiah was told to not marry, to not mourn for the dead, to not attend any feasts as a sign to the Jews of God's coming judgment. 
No one listened to him. Instead, people, including those in his own hometown and his family, plotted to kill him. Now, as we've seen and will see, Jeremiah had moments when he doubted God and was freaked out about all of this kind of stuff. But normally, his response, and ultimately, his response was to seek God for sanctuary. And that's what he does in verse 13. He says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. And so the Lord and Jeremiah have a little dialogue in this verse. Jeremiah turned to the Lord, and the Lord immediately responded. Now, the Lord didn't change Jeremiah's circumstances. In fact, things would get worse and worse and worse for Jeremiah. We haven't really gotten to uh, some of his persecutions. We know that people were plotting against him. They ridiculed him. They mocked him. But he's going to endure some pretty serious physical persecution as well. I think we sometimes fall for the con because we expect God to work in a particular way. Something happens, something's going on in our life, we pray about it, we have the, what we believe is a right heart to seek the Lord about it, but if things don't go the way that we think that they ought to, or as we would say, God didn't answer our prayer, which means that he doesn't always do exactly what we tell him to do, then we start to struggle. And we become open to suggestions from our conning heart. And so we struggle. I mean, don't you struggle with things? I struggle with things. I, was, <laughs> I think I've cried more the past month over different things happening in my life and other people's lives than I have in the last 27 years. There's a struggle, and we struggle, and, 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 and sometimes the struggle is directly with God and my, God, you know, why... Why aren't you doing something? I've been praying about this. Or why is, why is this what you are doing and why aren't you doing that? And, and if we're not careful, this is the moment when the con artist shows up and says, I have an idea. If God's not doing it, maybe, maybe this is the way you want to go. Or maybe we need to interpret it this way. Or, or maybe this is the idea. And sometimes, you know, you can get so far out into that where it makes no reality any, or no sense anymore to reality and it's clearly against the word of God, but it's become your new reality because you've conned yourself into it. I mean, you and I look at some people and we think, oh my goodness, you gave out your bank account number and your PIN number to a guy that knocked on the door saying he wanted it? What's wrong with you? Well, you were conned. And as smart and as theological and as spiritual as all of us think we are, we're also really, really good carn artists really good con artists and if you if you have the I guess bad fortune of getting saved later in life and can remember the way you used to live you know that you're a you're an awfully good con artist you could talk yourself into anything and that part of your flesh still exists it's still there all the time trying to get your bank account your heavenly bank account and draw from it to leave you bankrupt spiritually so that you will make your life a shipwreck. God has promised to be our fountain of living waters. He's promised to refresh and sustain us spiritually, no matter the circumstances. Earlier in this book, Jeremiah had described the Jews as trying to find substitutes for living waters by hewing out for themselves reservoirs that they called cisterns that could hold no water. The con always sells us on a broken cistern. 
It's like buying the Brooklyn Bridge. You ever use that phrase? If you, if you believe that, I've got a bridge for you to buy. Uh, I'll sell you the Brooklyn Bridge. You understand the Brooklyn Bridge isn't for sale, right? So if somebody comes to you and wants to sell you the Brooklyn Bridge at a reasonable price, first of all, why would you want to own it? But uh, secondly, don't buy it. Verse 14, heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. This was Jeremiah's response to verse 9. Remember, we said the heart in its natural condition was incurably wicked. We need to be saved and then go on being saved in the sense of daily growing in the Lord until we are ultimately saved when we go to be with him. The Bible calls this the process of sanctification. It's a big word that just means we're being set apart for God. You're saved the moment you believe, justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You're never gonna be any more saved than at that moment. But then there's a progressive daily walk with the Lord that is also called salvation in Scripture as he changes us from moment to moment, from glory to glory into the image of Jesus Christ. And then there's an ultimate salvation when this flesh will put on incorruption, meaning that our bodies will either be raised from the dead or transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And that salvation process, that sanctification process will be finished. And so we need to be saved in order to have our hearts uh, changed and transformed, and we need to be healed whenever our hearts are discovered to be out of sync. It's, it's like that you know, real process of electrocardioversion. Our hearts get out of sync. I know it's a metaphor, but our, our spiritual heart gets out of sync with God's heart, and God zaps us somehow through a trial or through the word or through an exhortation or a rebuke, he gets our heart back in sync with his heart so that we're not conning ourselves anymore. Jeremiah says, for you are my praise. Can I praise God in the storm, in the tragedy, even when I can't understand what he is doing or why he doesn't do something very different? Well, yes, yes, I can, but it's a choice that I must make. Verse 15, indeed, they say to me, where's the word of the Lord? Let it come now. It would seem that one of the criticisms leveled against Jeremiah was that the judgment he was warning about hadn't come. Uh, Jeremiah ministered for 40 years. Admittedly, that's a long time, but when we're talking about a devastating judgment, the burning of a city and its temple, the taking captive of millions of individuals, the, the death of many, many individuals, let's put that off as far as possible. But instead the people say, well, you keep talking about judgment. I don't see any judgment. The apostle Peter refers to this in the New Testament saying, even then and even now, people say, where's the promise of his coming? The Lord's not coming back. There's not going to be any judgment. We're here on our own. Now, we can give this a broader, more general application. It can be hard to hold on to the promises of God when things seem to be crumbling around you, but nothing is happening to change the situation. You don't need a scoffer to say, where is the promise of God in your life? Because your con artist is asking it of, him, of yourself. That's one of the things. Satan came to Eve and said, is this what God said? Did God really say this? And I think today what the devil does is, is inspire our hearts to say, is this what God promised you or where is God's promise? I thought he loved you. How is this love? And sadly, we're not as tough as Christians of previous generations. There's not enough talk 
about suffering and sacrificing and dying to self and picking up your cross and those kinds of things uh, in, in the 21st century church or in the 20th century church. I read a lot of sermons and hear a lot of sermons and quite honestly, uh, you know, I, and I'm not making a blanket criticism or saying we're better or somebody is worse, but a lot of stuff is just fluff. It's kind of a surface level fluff and, and people don't talk about suffering but I tell you what happens when a Christian inevitably gets into their trial or their suffering, what happens with fluff? It disappears. And if they don't know that God is God through the storm, they're going to start listening to the con artist that says, why don't you move in this direction? Why don't you take this approach? Going to church hasn't helped you. Being a Christian hasn't helped you. Why don't you get out of this church, get out of this marriage, get out of this job, get out of whatever, and, and kind of go in this direction. And, uh, you know, because we do, you know, the Bible says, think it not strange when you fall into various trials and temptations, and we do, but the problem is with a lot of modern Christians is not only they do, they keep thinking it's strange. It's one thing for me to, wow, where did this trial come from? This seems strange. Oh, yeah, wait a minute, I'm a Christian. I was promised trials and tribulations. A lot of people don't get to that step. They just keep being amazed that they're in a trial. And when God doesn't do exactly what they want him to do, they take the reins, they trust in the strength of their own flesh, and that can only ruin their lives all the more. The answer is to go on serving and seeking the Lord, even if you think you're not getting an answer from him. Verse 16, as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. And so Jeremiah is saying, I'm not looking forward to that day, but I believe it's coming. In the meantime, I'm just gonna serve you. And Lord, you know I have because you see the words coming out of my mouth. I'm gonna say that Jeremiah really didn't like the message he was told to deliver. And he probably wouldn't have chosen to live at that time if it was left up to him. We've joked about this before in our studies in Jeremiah. If, obviously, this isn't how it happens, but if, if all the prophets got together and God said, well, here's the different eras of time and periods of time in which you could live, um, I'd, I'd like, Isaiah's not too bad, except he ends up getting sawn in half. He ends up beside himself. That's the oldest one in the book. But anyway, um, you know, there's some times that are a little bit better than other times, and Jeremiah might have said, hey, I'll pass on this. I'd like to have at least one convert, you know, that kind of a thing. But nevertheless, he kept on serving the Lord. He kept, out, kept on giving out the word. And so verse 17 and 18, don't be a terror to me. You are my hope in this uh, day of doom. Let them be ashamed who persecute me. Do not let me be put to shame. Let them be dismayed, but do not let me be dismayed. Bring on them the day of doom and destroy them with double destruction. Jeremiah was predicting the day of doom for Judah. As much as he believed and trusted God, he still needed encouragement that God would be his hope when Jerusalem's walls fell and when its temple was on fire. We all put on a good front, but I think there are times when if we're honest, we're terrified of life and whether or not God is going to be sufficient for us in the spiritual conflicts we're in. Since I can't know he will be until I get to the end, it's a matter of faith, I must look at the lives of believers who have gone before me, like the men and women of faith in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. God came through for each of them, even when his coming through 
was their martyrdom. Which brings us back to the question I asked in this section. Do I want my heart to be in sync with God's heart? All of us who are believers would answer that question affirmatively. We would say yes. We need to continue to answer yes through all of our trials and tribulations, listening for God, looking to him, rather than conning ourselves and approaching life as a thieving partridge. When I used to scuba dive, I was told that there was always a possibility of becoming disoriented underwater. Uh, the closest I got to that one time, it was early on, I think it was one of the qualifying dives off of a boat, it was a boat dive. And um, uh, the, you don't have to be a genius to figure this out, but when you dive off of a boat, you'd better have your head down because when your tank hits the water, it rides up on your back and hits the back of your head. And so I had, th I had everything under control except the head down thing. And uh, I did become momentarily disoriented, but it was no big deal. Uh, you know, I didn't pass out or anything. But, uh, there, you know, anything can happen underwater, even in a sh shallow, you know, 30 feet, 20 feet. Uh, and you can become disoriented. And, and I, I, I thought, well, what do you do? And they said, well, it's easy. Because you're still breathing, you just follow your bubbles. Because your bubbles can't go sideways and they can't go down. And so disoriented, I mean, I might become so disoriented, I don't know which way is up. And that's a problem if you're underwater and you're trying to get to the surface, surface because there's an emergency. And so they tell you, it's one of the cardinal rules, always breathe normally and follow your bubbles because they will always lead you to the surface. All of us become disoriented in our walk with the Lord for various different reasons. Things people do to us, things we do to others, trials, tribulations, stresses, whatever it might be. The devil uses the world to appeal to our flesh to disorient us and get us moving in the wrong direction. God's word, by his spirit applied, will always lead us up to the heavenlies if we trust in him and in it more than in our deceitful hearts. Our hearts con us into thinking we are rising to the heavenlies when in actuality we are headed to crushing depths. God always leads you higher no matter what you and I think at the moment. No matter what prayer he's not answering or has answered in the negative or whatever's going on, always follow his counsel, follow his word because it can only lead you up. Let's pray.